You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. The podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Use the code UNICORN to save 10%. We're also supported by WorkOnRails.com. If you have a job to promote, you can list it for free with the code RELAUNCH. This is episode number 146, a conversation with Horace Dedu of Asimco about open source software. So uh, I just listened to your critical path episode from uh, yesterday or maybe a couple days ago. And you had a, uh, you, you made a comment at the beginning of the episode that is the perfect segue into this conversation. So you said about Hollywood that most people don't uh, think about Hollywood as a business, uh, but it, it must be or else it wouldn't exist. And, uh, I thought that was the, the ideal comment to segue into a conversation about open source software, how it exists, why it exists, maybe, you know, w- what the fact that it exists tells us about business models and business theory, etc. Sure. So why don't, why don't we start there? So the reason I invited you on is you've got such a great ability to explain sort of how things work and why mm. and, and posit on, on maybe the unknown issues around those topics. So let's just jump in and, and talk about open source software and, and uh, why it works from your point of view. Right. So, so you know, um, there's a theory, and this, this is a theory about technology and how how um, it it uh, is affected by by um, by the business uh, environment and the the theory goes that uh, products uh, and the technologies that enable them improve over time and that they actually get better more more quickly than than uh, the demand for improvement as it exists. So people's ability to make use of the improvements isn't as fast as the as the improvement rate. So this this is the foundation of of Christensen's observation about disruption. Is that it, the implication is that if when the slope of the improvement uh, is is higher than the uh, the rate at which it can be absorbed. Uh, there will come a point where the product is going to be better than than necessary, and and therefore it becomes um, over what they call over serving. Um, obviously, there's also a point where it's deeply underserving, and so the the all the improvements are easily absorbed. There's there's clearly something there the thing about software is that in some cases in some types of software have the problems that it's it's been trying to solve have been solved theoretically and and foundation uh in terms of foundations of that software a long time ago so i like to think for example about operating systems operating systems theory was formulated in the 1960s, understanding how to do basics of resource allocation, um, managing uh, 
processes and demands on on the um, uh, components that go into uh, um, von Neumann architecture, mm-hmm. and and so you know that theory led to Unix. It led to the sort of the the canonical implementation of of an operating system, and really there hasn't been a lot of innovation in theory. There have been extensions and, and adaptations for distributed computing. There have been adaptations for parallel computing. But found the foundation of, of managing a, um, a system were pretty much worked out, you know, 40 years ago. And so you ask the question, at what point, therefore, can you make operating system better? But how can you make an operating system better? And the answer is, you, you tended, at least what happened in the 80s and 90s, is that it tended to get bundled with things. The, the core functionality didn't need a lot of development, but there were things added to it and redefined what an operating system was. And so in the personal computer era, an operating system beha- became to be a bundle of services and, um, and sort of utilities that uh, people associated with, with uh, you, know, the, you know, potentially having, let's say, an integrated music player, an integrated browser, an integrated uh, file manager, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, clearly that's not necessary. And in fact, it got Microsoft into a lot of trouble in this bundling and, 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 and caused them to be uh, sued by the U.S. government. But the um, so so what what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is that there are pieces of software where they've gotten good enough and they're solving the problem well, the 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 problem that they're hired to do, and so they're in those cases what what the economic situation is that you can't usually charge money for products that have reached the state of being being good enough. Typically, you you know we call these commodities. Um, commodity, a, a commodity or commoditized uh, product is one where improvements made to it are usually not valued. Meaning, for example, let's say a real commodity, you know, like the commodity exchange in Chicago would trade these things, and you would have, you know, things like pork bellies and and coffee and corn and and so on. And the thing is, connoisseurs may be able to tell that there's a better quality coffee bean out there and there are better quality uh, barrels of oil and there are better quality pork. But as far as the market's concerned, they all trade at the same price. And that's the problem with trying to um, improve things which clearly are not, uh, um, you know, the, those improvements are not valued. So it, it's consistent with the theory that when you reach this point of being good enough, you can't really get paid for improvements. And this is why, in my opinion, open source exists. It exists in those niches or maybe actually broad, broad areas where the problems uh, have been solved. The, the, uh, there is little opportunity to get paid for improvements. And so, and so what happens is the developers of these things say, you know, we're better off giving this away. We're better off 
because it's going to cost us money to maintain this, but we can't get paid for that. We might as well recruit other people to help us for, for you know, as volunteers. And open source developed as a, as a you, people argued that it's, it's sort of a fundamental principle. And I, I, was, a, I was around when, when, uh, when uh, actually the Free Software Foundation and, and uh, um, the, the pioneers of open source uh, created it. Um, I, I remember seeing Richard Stallman uh, at a, at a, at a, in Kendall Square in, in Massachusetts, in, in Cambridge, um, you know, actually leading a, a demonstration, uh, you know, a real uh, uh, sort of like outdoors uh, uh, rally uh, against, uh, um, at the time, the, the bad guy was, was Lotus, uh, part of the, um, I think they had just gotten acquired by IBM. And so, uh, you know, they were trying to sort of bring attention to the to the evils of of a closed uh, source. But I think that's part of the the, the folklore. But the, the the reality and the reason again that it's things are sustained or not is that the economics work or don't. And I think that you know you you can have you can have ideology, but ideology doesn't sustain you very long. Uh, ideology didn't sustain the Soviet Union. Um, you know, economics took over at some point, and so that's my theory as far as open source is that it's it's a it's a construct that developed because software in some parts or some types of software became good enough. And so when you when you when you look at the major components of free free software. You have operating systems. You have kernels of browsers or or, or software that is essentially uh, um, horizontally valuable, uh, but but mature, and uh, and lots and lots of other utilities and lots of other other tools and um, and things of that nature. So that's maybe one way that we we can start the discussion. I I'm happy to take a uh, you know. Take a, 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 a hits on on whether that's value <laughs> that's actually correct or not. All right. Well, let me take a shot at maybe challenging a couple of the core ideas. So, so you, you made the point a couple of times that it's about economics in the end. You know that everything's about economics in the end, and, and can it sustain itself as a function of can the the parts that make it sustain themselves over time? So, what if that's wrong? What what if and, and here's here's one idea that could cause that to be wrong that still sort of economically would make sense. You know, what if the the people that are the the programmers and engineers that are doing the work that enables uh, open source software to exist? What if they value control more than money? So so what if there are two commodities, sort of two planes? of value competing with each other. One is sort of current compensation. And then another is control saying, I, you know, I don't need you anymore to the, to call it to the capitalist, to the company. Um, and it, it, if that's the case, then if control is super valuable, say, then that could enable a sustained sort of uh, collective activity of the, of the, the programmers to keep it going, even if no money changed hands. Yeah. Well, I, 
I think control is value in itself. I th- that is that is a a valid. Um, uh, I think that that is a valid way of of measuring performance in a way. As I said, the 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 question is who is the buyer, who is the consumer, and and normally you're measuring the the you know end user as as that. Um, line of absorption, as I mentioned. But if that line is actually not a consumer, but let's say a, a developer themselves, um, they're they not going to look at it entirely on, on an economic basis. They're going to be looking at it as, a, you know, their issues of control, as you put it. And there might be issues of um, um, ease of use or, or compatibility or... Um, there might be issues of um, productivity and, and and other other things that that make make sense to a developer, and so you have to measure it on on the on that you know what what the vertical axis is actually measuring is the basis of competition. So it's not purely that it's it's better by some definition of of uh, end user pr- preference, but I think the. So I'm not I'm not deflecting so much, but trying to 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 make make it clear that there's there is a flexible model. Mm-hmm. The, um, the what 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 I think it maybe maybe I need to understand more about the uh, the critique. I think that the the value of of openness is in the eye of the beholder in the, in many ways. But I think fundamentally, you do need the economic value to to um, to sustain almost any system. And I, I I don't know yet how this might not be the case in, in in this example. Maybe maybe you can ask the question a different way. Sure. So so let me describe my personal situation as a as a business owner and programmer because I think it's like an example of maybe the calculus that happens out in the world of programmers. So I I uh I own a a medium-sized uh, transportation brokerage here in the US and we uh uh, we develop all of our own software and sort of our entire competitive advantage is based on that, that collection of, of um, uh, software applications that runs everything. And in particular, what we do, just to give some context, is we, um, we predict what it will cost us to buy spot transportation. This is like truckload transportation to move freight. And so all, all of that, the, the prediction mechanics and converting that into real-time pricing is sort of what we do. Anyways, um, so uh, we would have this huge um, bill for software and a lot of restrictions around what was possible if open source didn't exist. But because it does, we're able to assemble, you know, uh, probably now 100 different or more than that, 100, 200 different components together to create kind of like a an ad hoc uh, sort of federated infrastructure for the business. And then we just build the domain specific stuff on top. Um, so because of that, and because I love that world, I love that it, it reduces the barrier uh, the, the capital requirements for me to enter what could be a kind of difficult business to enter by so much that I am willing to participate in open source in general, because you know, in other words, anything that I create that I think other people could use or, or my employees create, we contribute back 
to the community because it creates this this uh, ability to attack markets without capital. Mm-hmm. And so the value of having the ecosystem is so high to call it a technical entrepreneur, a programmer entrepreneur, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that as a class, maybe implicitly, we've decided to band together to, to sort of uh, um, disrupt, so to speak, the sources of capital which would be needed to fund the technology otherwise. So that's just a theory. You know? Well, it, 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 I think, okay, so let me, let me say first, firstly that what I practice, let me describe my business, and so what I practice is open source as well. In a sense, although I, I don't produce code, I produce data. And I source my data from public sources only. I exclusively, uh, uh, I, I, I refuse to look at non, non-public data. Um, I also am free. I, I openly share everything I do, and and um, if anybody asks, although productizing things is hard for a single person uh, working alone, uh, if anybody asks for my data, I'm 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 offer it freely. My so in that sense, I'm doing open source analysis, mm-hmm. and my my hypothesis is the same as yours in that there's more value in doing it this way, but I also don't think of the way I've turned the model around of analysis is I say I think the data is should be free um, or or cost nothing um, but I think the, the, the where I add value is in knowing which data to work with right. and invest in knowing interpretation and curation and and asking the right questions, that's more important than answering them. And so in that sense, that's what I offer if anybody's asking. So the way I've turned the the model on its head is I say data is free, opinion is expensive, and usually it's the other way around. Everybody has an opinion, and that's considered sort of a cliche. Everybody has an opinion. I don't want to hear your opinion. Uh, Give me the facts. And I say, no, the exact opposite. The facts are going to be free and my opinion is going to be really really expensive for what it's worth so, i love that tagline i think it's great. right so so i understand that i understand your point of view but i'm not but in a in a world where there would be huge scarcity and by the way my model only works because the internet exists the internet i, I also use a different sort of a um a different uh um uh tagline or, 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 or um, comment is that um, um, well, I just had it I forgot it um, but b- basically the the, um, the idea is that you know it's an asymmetric of, oh yeah the, the idea is with the internet is like many analysts will, will carefully guard their sources and sometimes those sources will be industry uh, uh, connections and so their Rolodex is the source of their insight. But I, I say that I have only one connection, and it's called an Internet connection. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the premise of my model is that with the Internet and the crowd uh, sourcing possibilities, we can turn the model upside down, the whole model of analysis upside down. So we have 
the, the data becomes free. But if data were scarce, if data were really hard to obtain, and then still there's a huge market. In fact, I'm the only you know, person I know who makes a living this way. But the, you know, there are thousands and thousands of analysts who make a, make a living selling data, and their opinion is relatively worthless. Um, and they work on the premise that data is scarce and that it's hard to obtain. And so in that world, you might, you know, that's the closed data or closed source model. And, and so I'm not naive to not, enough to sort of think that everything can be done the way I do it. And my point about uh, source and, and software is that some of the harder problems might be, you know, if you can crack them and, 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 and the software is really hard to write and the algorithms or the insight needed is, is, is really scarce, then there are a few specialists or you're working with a particular, let's say, let me, let me give you an extreme example. Let's say that there was um, a breakthrough in computer, uh, in computer design and engineering and that breakthrough was, let's say, I don't know much about this, so I could be way off, but let's say quantum computing. Now, if a startup were to create a quantum, quantum computer and it required a completely new programming language, a completely, completely new way of thinking about programming, then maybe they would, pro they would be better off uh, keeping that as a closed source uh, development for a while. And this is where you see also in even those advocates of open source like Google or or Apple keeping some of the stuff that's really proprietary separate from the the stuff that's open, and they they take the commodity stuff that's like operating systems and compilers and things like that, and keeping those open, and then moving some of the more more commercially valuable stuff into closed. Um, so there's this question like it not one size doesn't fit all and and I would I would definitely agree that for smaller players it makes sense to work together I don't see it as a as I you said disrupting the capital and it's not that it to me it just makes sense it just makes sense on 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 a on a personal level um but let's be clear that you're still in a modular world that you're dealing with modules that you're able to assemble like Lego bricks. And, and, and so the bricks themselves are commodities and, and are relatively free and people can design new bricks. But the, where you create values when you design the whole system as you put it together. Mm -hmm. And um, even if you share back that information, the way it's operated, the way it's put together, it, it creates value for you. Um, but you're, you know, that's that's I think a decision to be made by each proprietor, each owner, or of a business. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So a few things. One, I think that the, I think that the comparison you drew between your business and. Um, the you know businesses that use open source software is is almost dead on. Be, like I think they're almost exactly analogous in that that you know you're saying that if the the inputs to your synthesis are free and open, then they'll be improved by the community, and then you can add value by putting them together and adding your intelligence. And I think the same logic goes for open source software, basically. That you know that you know our company takes all these 
parts and puts it together and then just adds the novel bits on top plus the synthesis which may be novel and all the parts that went into it which used to be where all the money was made um, no one gets any money for um, so I think I think that those two seem almost exactly the the same and the point about disruption just what I meant was that so I remember I started a I started a, um, a software company back about 15 years ago and uh, then there wasn't as much open source. The open source ecosystem wasn't the same as it is today with respect to the software needed to, to start a, a web software company. And um, we needed a lot more capital from venture capitalists to to um, both buy the labor that was required to make the infrastructure components that we needed because there, there weren't um, any that you could either buy or use open source or purchase the the databases and and application servers and all the other parts of the stack that one would need and today none of that's true so if you and i wanted to start a business today um, we wouldn't have to get really one dollar from a venture capitalist for anything infrastructure related at all Mm -hmm. that's a big deal because you know the 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 class of you know the class of labor call it the programmers and you know call them technocrats that used to kind of need to be in bed with the with venture capitalists in order to start anything, all of a sudden don't necessarily have to, or to a much lesser degree, which would well, absolutely change the so relationship. It, it, it's it's true. It, it is found. It is fundamentally at the root of the the great renaissance, I think, of of software we're seeing, or or maybe it's just it has different names, the second machine age, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, it it. It's the, but again the, the the real reason I think is that it's just it's just gotten good enough at the at the levels or at the layers of software where where um, the problems have been nailed and solved. So you know databases, compilers, operating systems. Uh, things have also gotten commoditized on the hardware level. So we're so we're looking. At, I'll give you a personal example. I just got my my hands on a. On the Raspberry Pi, um, and I've all, I've wanted one for a while, and then finally I, I I got one, and I, I I was frustrated. I was trying to buy one, and I was in a visit to the U.S. at Fry's in in California, and it, I tweeted that you couldn't actually buy this thing at Fry's, which I thought in in, in my mind that it was a legendary place where you get these hardware components. Um, but anyway, I found, finally got one, and um, you know I, pl- I spent a couple of days. Getting to know it, and 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 it was so delightful to be able to see a thirty-five dollar nominal value piece of hardware. Um, you know, putting in your own uh, your own uh, uh, SD card for for, uh, for as a hard drive or as the as the as the store data store, and you know, putting on it your operating system, and when it boots up, it actually has. All the components that used to require a huge workstation and and thousands of dollars to have, and now that's a module that is conformable to many many other things. So the premise of of using the Raspberry Pi isn't that you're going to use it as a computer, but rather that you're going to use it as a module upon which you'll build all these cool things. I think you have educational opportunities, but I've seen people with Kickstarter. Um, ideas which are essentially embedding 
a, a Raspberry Pi in a box that does different things, streaming or game console or what have you. And suddenly you have a full-blown computer that, that is conformable to layers above it, which are the things, the services, and the, 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 um, uh, ultimately the experiences you want to deliver. But that's the value then is migrating up the stack to the things right. above where, where, where even a few years ago we thought there was value. There's nothing wrong with that. And I just want to be, be, be saying that, uh, that we're, we're advanced in a certain stage where, um, again, those pieces which we see as open, I also see as sufficiently modular and commodified that or commoditize i don't even know what the right word is but let's say commoditize that that means that that they're good enough mm-hmm. and 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 so people in the community therefore are willing to build let me take one more uh, slight detour and, and suggest that in fact the scientific method on which all engineering is based and almost all modern society is based today which began in the in the age of enlightenment in the 18th century is fundamentally based on the notion of open source. In fact, open source mm-hmm. borrowed its its uh, its its ideology from uh, from the scientific method, and hence from the age of enlightenment. And that meant that people published freely any thoughts they may have, and they tested against a peer review process. And it, you're better off publishing openly and sharing than you are hoarding information keeping things in secret societies that, uh, that uh, uh, do not allow that information to be shared uh, with those un- unauthorized. In fact, building societies, as we know as the Masons, were essentially uh, uh, guilds that protected knowledge and how buildings were built. There were guilds for everything, from manufacturing uh, shoes to leather to to, to weavers and cotton uh, makers and, and, and pretty much any skill and any, any craft in medieval Europe was protected by a guild and given a monopoly, usually in the, by an authority like the, the, the state at the time, which would have been a king. And, and that system was going for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years until somebody thought, he, you know what, maybe we're better off sharing that information. And lo and behold... Everybody got smarter, and suddenly the the uh, that enabled the industrial revolution, which happened in the 19th century. So you're seeing the age of enlightenment, uh, which, by the way, also enabled the American Revolution and and the American Constitution and and all of the things that came after it as well, in terms of including the French Revolution. All of that came from this notion that we are, we are better off opening things up. Um, and it led to, you know, one you know, just simple scientific thinking allowed society to sort of reform itself in, 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 in immense ways, politically and sociologically. So can I pitch a theory to you based on what you just said? Sure. Okay. But first, let me tell you a bit about today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code UNICORN. Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have great templates for you to start with and tons of style options for you to adjust, so you can really create your own space online. 
Everything is drag and drop so it's easy to add content from your desktop and even rearrange elements of content within a page. Squarespace makes sure your website looks uh, great automatically on any device because every Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design. You can easily connect Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, and many more web and social services. Squarespace also has e-commerce on their platform, so if you want to set up shop and sell things, you can in just a few minutes. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you need some help, over 70 Squarespace employees are on the customer care team, which is based in New York City. They're available for live chat during the week and have super fast email support throughout the day and night. As I said before, you can try Squarespace for free with no credit card required, and if you decide to purchase, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a domain name if you sign up for a year. Make sure to get 10% off and support the show by using the offer code UNICORN. So thank you to Squarespace for supporting both 5x5 and the Ruby on Rails podcast. So if, just to repeat the beginning of what you said, so, you know, once there were guilds and guilds created monopolies for, you know, everything basically, and then that gets freed up and then the power shifts, this is where I'll start sort of interjecting my thoughts, the power shifts from whoever can create the guilds, which then creates the monopoly, to whoever has the capital that then can buy the the machinery and labors and raw materials and uh, etc that one needs to competitively you know create monopolies and so and that creates you know the next uh, n hundred years of change but what if you know to to kind of crib a couple of people's thoughts here if software is eating everything sort of as as point number one and point number two is that all software, give or take, can be made good enough at this point, given the modularization of the components and the interest in control of the programmers, the kind of the, the, the lone, the independent programmers, then does that say that sort of the next age will be the sort of the post-capital age, where, you know, the, 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 the shift goes away from those that can control the resources through money to those that can control the synthesis of basically free resources into value. Well, let's be careful because I think that in some ways, actually, capital became more important as as knowledge became more shareable. And and what what so let's go back again to history where where um, in in times of well, let me put it this way: when you unleash these forces, economic growth happened and and it happened so tremendously that it was almost like a step function you know going back if you go back a few hundred years and look at gdp data it looked like it was flat and then suddenly it looks like it went straight up and that was a, the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution brought about a huge new demand for capital because it was so scientific thought and rationalism allowed allowed people it allowed actually you, it took power away from the guilds, but it gave it to those who could engineer. So those who could actually build systems with these components, right, and with these pieces of knowledge that were suddenly more available. And so the engineering uh, industries of the 19th century, starting with transportation and steam engines and so on, and later into factories and mass production, all of that was possible because of the scientific methods, but it also de- demanded huge amounts of new capital. And in fact, the capitalist era began in earnest through that period of, of the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution. And the reaction to that were 
where the Marxist and socialist right. uh, counter counter uh, capitalist ideas. So, so just point, to, just to be clear on that one, so I, mm-hmm. I totally I totally agree with that. But those are industries that are hard industries that require capital for. Uh, let, let's exclusively focus on hard assets like steel and and power and you know all these things that are that are uh, that there's no possibility that they could be free. Right, right, right. No, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Now, just just want to conclude the thought that the the problem. So I know what we're in now is a sort of a less capital intensive, uh, seemingly so. You know, we don't need and and I I totally. I, I don't know when I said this, but I, I would have been very glad to say this, that nowadays, actually, I, I remember I was, I was, in a, in a, I was a guest at a, at, a, um, at a case discussion at, in, in Harvard Business School where, where, where we were discussing the, the venture capital industry to, to, uh, to these students. And, and I pointed out that it, there's less need for venture capital now in many, in many ways because you have, uh, first you have alternatives like Kickstarter, you could crowdsource, crowdfund. But the other thing is that you actually, you used to need 30 people to have a software company and most of them had to be in sales. Now you have free distribution because of the internet or relatively low cost distribution. Then you have, you have, um, um, because of the open source and and components that are freely available, you don't need to hire that many engineers to do work. You might need a designer, which you didn't need before, but because now design is more important. But you still need a core team of you know a couple of people who who can you know put the put the project together. And um, uh, that that's but here's the here's the problem. I think if if you say that. You, you start to say, however, once you get going, you're going to b- build on a trajectory and improve um, you, what, what the basis of improvement will be. That will require, um, if not capital, it will require resources, people that will ultimately, in fact, the, the ideal situation is you, you will create more jobs through this innovation, then then where were possible to be created with software in the 1990s, I think the, the w- w- this is a bit controversial. It's a big problem with the capitalist dilemma now as to whether the jobs are actually going to be there. But uh, this is this is the this is the theory. The theory should be that if this is an empowering innovation, it will lead to even bigger growth. And although the capital, the cap, the thing you you not you don't need to. I think the problem with capital thinking is that it doesn't need to be controlled by a few individuals. Capital exists, and how it gets allocated and from where it comes is not that important. That is only a control issue in that sense of sort of having pools of money that are controlled by individuals. You have institutional money, and mm-hmm. and and that that has its own. Problems. I think par- partly it's the way the institutions manage money that leads to the dilemma. But you know, individuals like through Kickstarter will 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 give up their capital in exchange for um, for um, for a stake in, in in an innovation. And and so there, there's I I don't put the finger on capital. I think more about the question of how the the um, shift. If, and there is an era shift. There's a shift higher up the stack. There's a shift where we are building on the shoulders of giants. We're building on 
on things which have been solved in the past. And, and, and that gives us freedom to actually innovate in a different area, in a different um, way than, than before. Mm-hmm. And, and that should be liberating, and that should also be potentially creating value. And capital is nothing more than a lubricant. And, you know, it, it, um, it, I, I, have to, my, I guess my thoughts aren't perfectly formed in this area, and I, I think I hopefully I'll, I'll get some, somehow progress in this area, but I don't know if I'm uh, helping here or not. Well, let, let's talk about the capitalist dilemma a bit. So I've, I've uh, watched, the, um, watched the video and read uh, a bit about it and heard you talk about it too. And uh, so, so for anyone listening that hasn't, you know, pause now and go watch those because I think we're, we're just going to jump right to a couple of the key points. But so a couple questions for you about it. So one of the the premises of the capitalist dilemma is that um, job creation would come from um, what's the word he uses for for innovations? Uh, um, empowering. Empowering. Innovation. Yeah, empower innovations. A job would be created, and that uh, just to paraphrase that because the 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 way that we measure return on investment is too short, too short term, or at least not tuned towards empowering innovations that capital goes to creating things that basically create capital, but, but not empower innovations. Is that about right? Right. So this is the, 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 the thinking is that, you know, the dichotomy used to be that there were, there were disruptive innovations and there were sustaining innovations. And that was the first time anybody actually bothered to sort of even divide innovations into two buckets it used to be just well it's innovative or it's not innovative well it turns out that you can be more precise about what type of innovation now he's taken it a step further and said first he rebranded disruptive to enabling or 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 um empowering and i think i think that is partly because he needs to cast the problem in the more of a policy and and um you know the way the way politicians think um, and so if you're going to get in the New York Times uh, op-ed, you're not going to be uh, received well. Or the, 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 and also the other problem is disruptive innovation has kind of become corrupted sure. uh, and diluted. So anyway, let's say it's, it's now called empowering, but I think it, about it as the same way as disruptive. And then comes sustaining, which hasn't changed, that still has the same meaning, that you, know, you, you improve things and go up the trajectory sometimes too far, but mostly you're doing it because it's actually useful to do so. And then he says there's something that now happens at the top of, the, of this trajectory where you've gone beyond good enough, and that is, in, and if you're not disrupted and you're not, you know, the, the, the path is sustainable, then you have this third category, which he calls efficiency innovations. So efficiency innovations are like saying we're, we're at the top of our game, but now we ran out of growth because we've saturated the market, and so now it's time to cut jobs and move things offshore and break the company into pieces and for, you know, focus on core competencies. And all of these things that we hear all the time is justifying um, uh, uh, usually job cuts. Um, those things, and by the way, as you do that, you keep throwing off more cash. You're still enormously profitable, and you can be doing efficiency innovations even when the economy is going down because efficiency is about cutting costs typically. So that frees up that capital. Now, what he says is that historically that free capital would be then de- deployed either by the firm 
the firm that generates it or by the owners of the firm through dividends or other payouts, they would take that money and plow it into the new um, um, uh, new empowering innovations, right? New disruptions would, would take root because that capital was available. The problem is that the dilemma is this, that so much capital has been created that people are just hungry to get more capital and are not redeploying it down at the bottom and to create this new new cycle. So it used to be a cycle, but now it's sort of just one one way street, and you end up with the, with uh, uh, with the world awash in capital, literally trillions of dollars sitting in bank accounts, and 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 innovators, people who are saying, "Look, I've got a great idea," cannot get funded. So and that's the that's the dilemma. Let me let me let me throw this at you. So. What if the capitalist dilemma was really the innovator's dilemma for capitalists? And here's what I mean by that. So, uh, you know, innovator's dilemma, you know, idea being that, that the thing that got you here uh, is going to not get you to the next thing, but fear of that being the case will cause you not to change, you know, ish. Uh, so, so what if, though, if we sort of synthesize this whole conversation and say, well, the thing that got the capitalist there was capital and deploying the capital, Um but now the thing that create and that used to be what created in, uh, um, empowering innovations was deploying capital into game changing um, new capabilities that sort of you know come from below and disrupt the incumbent. But but what if what if the next round of empowering innovations don't need capital mm. or that much capital? So- yeah, I you know I I I'll, I'll, I'll confess that this is my what i hope to contribute to this discussion is exactly this because the team that's working on this on this puzzle the christensen team um is coming at it from a general perspective right i mean a general the general industry perspective rather than the technology perspective and i think in fact when i first heard this 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 dilemma um about a year ago I heard of it, and, and I heard Clay explain it. I immediately raised my hand and said, you know, in the software industry or technology industry in general, we don't have that much need for capital. It's become less and less capital intensive. So maybe, and, and at the, you know, and I think I raised exactly your point, that that capital has not, doesn't have the value it used to, not because it's abundant, but because there's no demand. That's right. Right. It's not that there's an excess supply. It's just there's 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 le- relatively less demand. Now, I I've had a year to think about it, and so I I still don't have the answer. But I think we have something to contribute to the debate as technologists. And and I, you know if I were to look at through the Apple lens, and you know that's a great lens to look through because here's a company that has gone through these cycles they've been very disruptive they've been with the iphone you can see it in real time they've they've now built it up in a sustaining way where you know it's it's just huge numbers huge huge impact um and now it's slowing the growth is slowing and uh there's they threw off a huge amount of cash right hundred billion dollars has been created by them and now they're just sitting on that money and everyone would point the finger and say aha you have the dilemma here because look they have no idea how to spend this or or, or wisely use this while their peers 
and some people sort of egged them on saying because look your peers are spending it on on instagrams and 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 oculus and 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 moonshots but that's not the answer because i think the 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 uh the point of of the dilemma is that it has to be empowering and just throwing the dice isn't the answer the point is that it's not it's also you know overpaying for assets isn't isn't in, isn't uh, 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 creating uh, the right investment buying an, uh, buying a company is not uh, investing in an innovation right um, it's if anything it's throwing cash from one pocket to another from the pocket of one set of investors those right. owning let's say Facebook to the pocket of the VCS who who back the startup and so it's up to those VCS to yet again deploy that that somewhere so unless that that instagram or 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 oculus begins to generate huge huge uh um uh in, in, you know the innovations gen generate huge value which they're not doing so because they have no sales um then then uh, you know until then this is still an open question as to whether they're you know they're doing the right thing with this capital allocation so um so what i'm saying is how how you know as a technologist we need to look at our case studies we need to look at what's happening in 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 our industry which happens very quickly and that's a good thing because it's like a petri dish that you can actually observe things you know in the laboratory setting almost and and you also have the ab you have company a doing one thing company b doing another you can do a quick tests and see what's going on um so in that sense this is where i think the the value comes to the discussion and um i you know i'd be honest with you and like i said i i have a confession here that i i think there's something to add here and um i'm not w yet willing to jump to the hypothesis you have that that actually the the capital allocation industry is is being disrupted i think capital is maybe that's not the frame of reference we should be we should be thinking i think certainly perhaps some people in the in the in the investment community will be obsolete that's for sure i think that, that there's way too many uh people middlemen in in that world and and they're not really adding value and maybe their value will will evaporate the financialization in fact the financialization is one of these words which 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 suggests that that uh everyone is thinking with a financial hat on they're all thinking about optimization they're all thinking about ratios they're all thinking about getting some uh return on x rather than just thinking wouldn't this be great to build something cool mm -hmm. um that is not a return on x was not the way henry ford approached life and i don't think anybody did up until the 1960s or 70s when people said suddenly theoreticians or 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 uh people of of an academic inclination suggested that the you know the purpose of the firm is to optimize x or y it wasn't the case they just people were building stuff because it was great to build stuff and they you know and i still i still think in the technology world there are lots and lots of examples of people doing great stuff um in fact if anything it's it's google that shows just how irreverent and how how you know the how insensitive they might be to 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 these uh, ratios and and optimization and and essentially they're thumbing their nose to to wall street all the time 
but then again, so so is Apple, and so were many others before them. Um, and then, and I think Andreessen Horowitz and all these guys who are basically repeating the same mantra, saying, "Look, we're not like like Wall Street at all. Uh, venture capital is is actually um, much un, much closer to understanding, you know, how to create great things." And so, Silicon Valley might be the place where that dream of uh, pre-financialization mm-hmm. America is still alive and well. So yeah, I, I think the the but I'm not ready to jump all the way to the conclusion to say that that capital is no longer relevant. I think what we might what I hope will happen is that all those trillions of dollars will actually be put to use in really clever new things. So let me give you examples. Uh, Elon Musk is talking about deploying billions of dollars to build batteries. That's a capital-intensive idea. What if also, by the way, here's another example, you know, Apple spends huge amounts on data centers and does, puts them in with with solar panels. And that's, many people will say, why? Why bother? And they're doing it for for the benefit of, of sort of being carbon neutral. And that's, a, that's maybe just an, an altruistic principle. But I think fundamentally from a data center economics point of view, building these data centers to 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 have a neutral footprint is good business because ultimately long term uh, the the fuel costs uh, will actually cause data center costs to rise and so it may make sense for you to have that that um, upfront cost in capital uh, capital equipment i.e. The, the solar panels and the fuel cells to 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 offset any uh, volatility downstream, if, if if and when there might be some some volatility in 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 uh, in uh, hydrocarbon f- pricing, so this might make good sense for you to be neutral now, uh, carbon neutral. And so imagine if um, technology companies then begin spending significantly on on, on these types of capital intensive things, manufacturing, and Apple's doing some of that, data centers. Everybody's doing that. Energy, energy uh, efficiency, and and, uh, and and new sources of, of energy. In fact, here's a, here's a weird weird hypothesis. What if the technology industry takes a leadership role in energy and actually builds huge plants, not just to serve itself, but to serve everybody? And says, you know, that we're going to uh, imagine the scenario that Apple's Apple will say we're going to build power plants. Solar-based power plants, which will offset all the energy consumption of all the phones that our customers are going to buy. That's not to say that every user is going to plug into that power plant, but they're saying we're going to generate generate enough juice that powers a billion phones, and they're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And 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 so that buys them that buys them all kinds of, of good uh, vibes and and all, and all that. And um, and 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 by the way, yet another thing Apple does with capital is that they they build all these stores and they employ tens of thousands of people in these stores. And retail may seem like, well, that's not really, that's not really a, a high tech thing. But in fact, it's part and parcel of their brand, of their image, of the way they operate, of the way they're integrated. It does the job for the end user. Blah blah blah. So that's 
that's exactly what, how Apple should be doing uh, its distribution through its own stores. But then you see this is the industrialist model. This is the, the, this is the model where you vertically integrate. This is Henry Ford all mm-hmm. over again. You own, the, you know, you, you go back and you own the, the silicon and you own the stores and you own everything in between and you make sure that the factories all work together. Uh, you move production where it makes sense. And I wrote about this years ago. I said, you know, it's time for Apple to own its own factories. Um, and, it, you, you know, maybe it'll get there someday. Uh, so, and then, and then if Apple does it, the great thing about Apple is that it's kind of like the leader and everybody else tends to follow. And I think you'll see Microsoft do that. You'll see Google do that and maybe Facebook do that. And that's going to be a great thing for everyone. And, and, um, and suddenly all those trillions of dollars that are sitting on balance sheets earning negative interest uh, will will probably be saying, you know what, we can get, even if it's an, a negligible value of like 1%, might as well use it because it's not doing us any good uh, sitting around like that. So I, I was with you until the very end in, in that, uh, in, <laughs> and the, the line that, that I think I am not with you on is actually the, the same line I'm not with. Uh, Clay Christensen on in his capitalist dilemma pitch, which is that, that it'll be good for for everyone. So let, let, let me let me throw throw out an idea about his capitalist dilemma pitch. So I think when I listen to it, he he reveals it pretty early on in the presentation um, it, it kind of a belief about the objective of the whole I don't know, economy, I guess that would could cause him to not see what may be happening. And, and that objective is that that in the end, if things are going right, jobs are created. And like that seems like a pretty big leap to me. Like you know, in other words, whose objective is it to create jobs? It's well, not. It's not the capitalists. It's not the technologists. It's not the like no one's job to create jobs. And the only re- like this is my this is I'm throwing this out there. I don't even know if I completely believe the degree to which I'll say it, but like. It, maybe it just so happened that creating jobs was correlated with the things that created, you know, the, the real objective, the, the wealth creation objective or the power consolidation objective or whatever. But what happens if those things detach? What if job creation and, you know, power consolidation or wealth creation or whatever are just detached and they never were, it never, or it was well, causal and it's not now? But that's, I think that's the problem is I think we got to jobs because we started with wealth and and so the the, the logic of I, you know i hadn't heard i had not heard clay talk about jobs until like a year ago when he introduced this this theory uh all along it was about the dilemma of the individual first it was the manager and that was the innovator's dilemma then it became the, the dilemma for the firm uh and and the the, the, the you know the, the prescription for 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 solving it was was in the innovator solution then it became an issue for for uh, the industry and that was seeing what's next. It's like you see his books expand in scope, and it goes from the individual to the firm to the industry, and now to the economy, to the whole nation, and and potentially the world. And so, why why do you do this? Why do you expand scope? And and I think that what what if a theory is sound, you push it to its limits, right? I mean, the implications of the theory go so that yes, the individual is. Is it has a problem, you solve it, and then that, and the firm has a problem, you solve it, and then you realize that you, that the industry's role is is to create wealth. But if that wealth is 
not connected to society, you you have a problem in sustaining it at all because in the in the democratic society, inequality breeds uh, instability, and so in order, why should a business person care about uh, policy? Care about uh, these inequality issues? And I, as a you know, as a blue-blooded whatever capitalist and as a sort of you know uh, believer in free enterprise. I don't like the word capitalism because it's kind of like a reactionary word. Like I said, it came out of the the Industrial Revolution as a reaction to what was happening. I think more about it as sort of like as someone who believes in in the power of entrepreneurship, um, and 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 sort of the, you know the individual uh, the individual uh, um, uh, creative power um, is 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 the fuel that makes uh, makes society work. But the point the point is that you do have to worry about inequality because you have the potential for for leaving the vast bulk of people who actually un- ultimately will be your your customers. They need to also be brought along with you on this. And and you know I I think that there that's where you have to ask the question that the innovation should somehow have benefit benefit beyond the innovators and 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 that's where you know i i'm i'm not a good spokesperson for this theory because again i may not even uh know the the you know uh or connect the, these dots very well in my mind yet but i think that's the that's the basic premise is is how how Sort of, you have to make all the boats rise somehow. I think you're you, you are personally, at least from what I know of your business, uh, an interesting example to use. In that, you know, historically, you would be very tied to your the community where jobs would would exist, right? You'd be a uh, you know you're well educated and 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 smart and social and all the things that would make you a great business person in sort of a you know whatever geopolitical world you you reside in, but. If you kind of look at your business, you don't really reside in a geopolitical place, really. I mean, you reside in some sort of like parallel plane that's more, you know, call it internet centric, whatever that means. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's that's a, that's a re- yeah. It's hard to explain to people. Yeah. Right? Well, well. So, but so then you like for economically, you exist in this parallel universe that's quite divorced from the geopolitical world, and like I don't know that your personal. I'm just using you because we're talking, but like, I don't know that, that it's obvious, at least that someone that lives in that second plane, um, economically, but like that in the lifespan of call it your career, it matters much if there's like, I'm, I'm not saying that this is my like political belief, you, you know, yes, but maybe there it doesn't are, matter. there's this, this huge disconnect between the micro and the macro. There is this huge disconnect between what can we do? To can we feel these 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 uh, giant impacts that we're trying to 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 conceptualize? And this is I've always had trouble with this. I'll I'll be honest again because I I I, I shy away from from uh, you know the global picture in that sense. The, the sort of the you know you, the old saying uh, think globally, act locally. Well, I I think locally and act locally. I I, I think very much about the small. Microeconomics, the 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 uh, bottom-up approach of thinking about everything, and 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 I don't 
don't trust this type of of um, models which assume that that we can simplify the world in 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 large scale, especially when when that world is 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 billions and billions of people and, and is far bigger than it used to be uh, when theories like this were first formulated. So um, you know, I believe quantity has a quality of its own. So so there's 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 that problem I have. I agree. But I, I think the, and I'm not, again, I think the, this is part of the discussion about the dilemma that we have to have. Um, it, it just sends, there's this question. There's also still a question as to whether it really is a dilemma. Maybe it'll take care of itself in the next few years. Maybe this whole premise is based on a pattern recognition that, that during the last recession or two, we haven't had job growth that was as fast as, as, as in the previous recessions, and a lot of people are wringing their hands about uh, um, inequality and, and on and on, and all of these political issues are 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 are, are being being uh, put forward. And so, maybe those things are just transient. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, I I think that that my I, I'd like to have this. I'm, I'm glad to have this discussion. I'd like to be able to kind of take it forward w- with the the domain uh, understanding we have in technology. But I would encourage everyone to really think about the ways that um, what we do in technology benefits everyone to some degree. Um, I think it's it's not i don't see it as a duty and i don't see that failing to do so is a sin but it is something we ought to consider doing that's fundamentally the the point and i i i don't i'm not a a um uh, uh an apologist for those who who are uh those who are you know anti-capitalist or 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 anti-gentrification and all that it's happened so many times before that it's completely irrelevant what 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 you hear from from the San Francisco kind of like movements to to uh, stop uh, uh, the encroachment of the wealth that that's being generated. But but still on a on a on a global basis, um, there there we have to think that it's not going to be um, lottery winners versus everyone else, you know, right. um, in technology. So you've anyway. been you've been super generous with your time, and and I thank you. It was uh, I think that it's not a um, coincidence that a conversation about open source would lead here. And my my own personal point of view is that open source is is a bit of a Rosetta Stone for for understanding why some things are happening in the macro world. Um, because the open source doesn't make sense in some ways uh, economically, and neither do some things macro, and yet maybe it does. And if we well, in, yeah, that's that. The, where I would challenge you simply that I think it does make a lot of sense economically, and it's not, you know, it's it's. Um, it, I don't think people are ruled by economic thought. I don't think we're all economic uh, economic animals, but on the same time, if, in the long term, if things aren't valuable, sure. Uh, you know, there's another. Yeah, I agree. We, we could have another discussion, for example, about security. 
like why do people hack? Why you know are all hackers motivated by right. by 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 financial gain? Actually, I argue no. I'm artists aren't either. There's a lot of people who aren't aren't motivated by financial gain, but in in terms of creating large systems of people, large enterprises, that fuel is really kind of needed for 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 keeping things going. And even the arts can't really survive long without someone you know being being uh being paid to to do it i think the um there's an old latin saying primum vivere in the philosophari which means first you must live then you can be a philosopher and and so right. living means getting some food on on the table and that's patrons of the arts have known this for a long time mm-hmm. So we jumped right into the conversation without uh, you introducing all of the things that you've got going that people may be interested in. So if you don't mind, why don't you tell people where they can see you? Um, sure. So so I write in, in, in a blog called Asymco, A-S-Y-M-C-O. Um, it's uh, asymco.com. And uh, I, I host a podcast also on 5 by 5 called The Critical Path. Um, where we deal more about mobile mobile computing and 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 and, and um, tangents to it, um, <laughs> many tangents. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's one thing. I also do. Um, uh, what else do I do? You I, have I, a new I, podcast, don't you? Did I just see? Um, one? I've done. I've done. I have a. a TV pilot, actually, TV show pilot called Significant Digits. We're not sure we're gonna it's gonna get picked up in any way, but we can find financing for it. But um, trying to dabble in in also sort of talk show uh, on 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 TV because there's a, there's a way to in- introduce the visuals that I that right. I use in my in my presentation online, but it's not possible to do that with pure. Um, pure talk show like you know podcast show so i'm thinking about this kind of tv model and, and apps and and live presentations so we also do live do a lot of live talks as well um and um yeah so a little bit of consulting as well but so yeah that's what i do on twitter are you on twitter i am on twitter as a simco or hdu but i have a lot more followers on a simco at a simco and that uh, would be my main main outlet. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter.